0: Welcome, 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 welcome to the Vanderbilt Internal
1: Medicine Podcast. This podcast is provided for our internal medicine residents to enhance their educational experience. The content audited by residents is not verified by host or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice, and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions represented are our own and are not representative of employer. Please keep this mind as you podcast.
2: Welcome back to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Well, it's good to see you again, guys. Uh, today we have a special treat for you. We have Max Nutt, who is one of the chief nephrology fellows here with us today, and he will be speaking to us about the issue of salt. I know everyone is always uh, wondering what to do with their sodiums on their BMPs, right, Tara?
1: Oh, yeah. I still cringe a little bit when that BMP comes back and the sodium is low. I always hope that if I repeat it, it'll Go back to normal, but <laughs> I always think it's—I mean—I think it's helpful to review hyponatremia as many times as possible because even when I feel
2: like I get it one time, I find reminder. myself back on yeah. up to date. Yeah, yeah. Um, Max, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
0: All right. Well, first off, it's an honor to be here. I'm Max. I did my medical school in Southern Illinois, where I was raised. And then I went off to Wake Forest in North Carolina and did my internal medicine residency. This is my second year in fellowship, and I can say that I certainly have had plenty of repetition when it comes to hyponatremia <laughs> along sure. the way. I know that most of y'all get pretty worked up when you get a hyponatremic patient. And oh my gosh, do I even have to call nephrology over this one? But... Honestly, I'm one of the guys that doesn't get upset when you give me a call about hyponatremia. I'd rather get involved early rather than later on. But first, a little bit about me. So I enjoy living in Nashville. Some of the things I like to do is just the the nearby hiking, have done some of the day hikes around town, and also kind of travel a little bit on the outskirts of town, like to do backpacking and camping and that kind of stuff.
2: Any favorite spots?
0: So, have you heard of the fiery gizzard?
1: I've heard it's twelve miles long.
0: It yeah. was borderline torture. Oh my <laughs> gosh,
2: really? Yeah. I haven't heard that part.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a long day, and uh, it ended in a long night, and it was raining. Yeah. But- what
2: about something uh, less intense? Any good? Any good food recommendations?
0: You know, um, one of my favorite places to go is the River House downtown, a steakhouse that opened up recently. Highly recommend it to anybody who likes a good steak.
2: Well, that's awesome. Thanks for the introduction and the recommendations.
1: So just to clarify, Max, you said you want us to call you at any time of the day or night if we have questions about sodium.
0: You know, preferably during the day would be an ideal time to give me the call. If you call me at night, I'm not going to be upset or mean over the phone if it's hyponatremia. I
2: will have to ask, too, uh, the famous Joel Toff on curbsiders is known as Kidney Boy. Can we start calling you Salt Boy?
0: Well, at Wake Forest, little known fact here at Vanderbilt, I was actually known as the Sodium Guy,
2: Uh, not Sodium Sodium Boy. So we'll start calling you the Sodium King, then. I think we can elevate that, elevate your status here.
1: Sodium King talk us through why hyponatremia is important to talk about first of all and then second of all how you start with your approach
0: okay so first i feel like we need to talk about why does hyponatremia matter and why is it important i think you know what it boils down to is it's not so much sodium that we're worried about as it is osmolality and fluctuations in osmolality can lead to water shifts in the body Most importantly, in confined places like the brain. Y'all probably remember from first aid and studying for step one, the mnemonic, high to low, the brain will blow, low to high, pons will die. That holds true. You guys remember? I still
2: think of that every time I see i I'm like, wait, which way is it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a chant in my head.
0: (laughs) So yeah, that's the whole reason why hyponatremia or, you know, low osmolality matters. I think one of the principles that's important to talk about is the difference between osmolality and tonicity. Osmolality is really just solute dissolved in a solvent. And tonicity means that it's a solute's ability to exert pull on water. Um, so if a solute cannot pass through a membrane, it's therefore an effective osmol. And that means that it will pull water across that membrane to reach an equilibrium. And so that's an important principle to remember when you're thinking about osmolality and hyponatremia. Let's just keep that in the back of our heads. I think it's important to talk about some of the basic physiologic principles that allow a healthy person to maintain a normal serum osmolality and serum sodium. This is done in part by the hypothalamus and the osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus that are constantly checking what your osmolality is. It starts to get out of whack we have a few mechanisms that can bring it back into normal range one of them is thirst by increasing thirst you increase intake of hypotonic fluid which can drive down your your osmolality another one is adh which acts in the kidney to also bring down the serum osmolality and this is by binding with vasopressin receptors and allowing aquaporin fusion in the collecting tubule and water reabsorption across the medullary interstitial gradient. In order to do that, you have to have a high osmolality in your renal medulla. And this is done by, you know, the NAK2CL co-transporter that our loop diuretics work on, as well as some of the other channels in the loop of Henle. And you may ask, at what point does ADH get released? And at what osmolality would you want to be reabsorbing water from the tubule? Well, the studies have been done, and it shows that at a serum osmolality of greater than 285, you start to get an increase of ADH release. It's a very steep increase in the release of ADH in relation to the serum osmolality so that once you've reached a serum osmolality of about 310 to 320, you should be concentrating your urine to a, you know, pretty close to maximally concentrated. The urine osmolality can vary quite a bit from 50 milliequivalent equivalent a liter to about 1200 milliequivalent per liter. It's important to realize that this is not a healthy person who has totally intact kidneys, is not on diuretics, doesn't have something like sickle cell disease, which can greatly impair your ability to both dilute and concentrate your urine. But generally speaking, urine osmolality can vary quite a bit. If you start looking at something like a desert rat who has less access to water, their urine osmolality can be much, much higher than a human's, like 2,500 milliequivalents per liter.
1: Max, thanks for talking us through that physiology. So let's say we call you or we get a call from the ED about somebody who's coming in, sodium of 128. That's all we really know. What are the first things that are going through your mind? What kind of questions are you asking? And kind of talk us through your thought process when you hear about a low-sodium in a patient.
0: Absolutely. I think... You know, when I'm getting called for hyponatremia, I like to assume that this is a hypotonic hyponatremia. Somebody's already confirmed that the serum osmolality is low. You know, we all know about causes of hyponatremia, like hyperlipidemia, specifically triglycerides, hyperproteinemia, things like that, or hypertonic isotonic hyponatremia caused by hyperglycemia. There are some other causes. I imagine that if you as an internal medicine resident are reaching out to me, we've already kind of gone through that. We've checked a serum osmolality. We're already talking about hypotonic hyponatremia. There are many different methods about how to go through this. One word of caution I would say is using something that's not an objective measurement as your first branch point for this diagnosis. Many of these algorithms are going to use volume status as kind of the first branching point. We're notoriously horrible at assessing volume status, and I think that if you go down the wrong branch immediately by picking the wrong volume status, you thought they were euvolemic, they're hypervolemic, you're never going to get to the right diagnosis, and it's really just going to muddy the water. That's a complicated way of me saying that my first (laughs) diagnostic approach is to look at an objective measurement, which is a correlate of the ADH activity, and so I'm going straight for the urine osmolality. It'd be really helpful if you've already had a urine osmolality by the time you've consulted me. Isn't that right, Jared?
2: <laughs> yeah, that that would be right. Unfortunately, uh, as, a, as an April intern, I made that mistake while consulting uh, Max, and he had to subsequently remind me of the utility of getting such a test. But luckily, I, I don't need those reminders anymore, which is a good thing, you know.
0: That may or may not have been after he got my hyponatremia talk. <laughs> That's true.
2: That's, That's true. okay.
0: It's a learning process. Right. Once I see a urine osmolality and start to think about what's going on with ADH, um, you know, really I'm putting it into one of a couple buckets. Is ADH low, meaning that the urine osmolality is low? You're not reabsorbing all that water out of your urine. Or is the urine osmolality high, meaning ADH is high and its presence is allowing for the water to be reabsorbed from the urine into the renal medulla. And there are some, you know, gray zones. There's some of the different algorithms use different cutoff points for high versus low. In general, I think, you know, urine osm greater than 200 signifies there's some ADH presence. A urinosm less than 100 signifies that ADH is not a big player in this hyponatremia. And in the middle is what I kind of call my gray zone. Um, in patients who have impaired dilutional capacity, like somebody with CKD, like I mentioned already, sickle cell disease, a lot of them, the best they're going to do is the gray zone. So this doesn't apply for everybody, but it does allow you to kind of put in put some people into some buckets what really gets me interested is when I've got a hypotonic hyponatremia that has an elevated ADH. And I think that ADH is a major player. One of the reasons why it's interesting to me is because it's pretty easy to make the diagnosis. I, I could pretty much narrow it down to four major causes if we have a high urine osm. And I think we can go through those four and kind of talk about some of the um, different characteristics that would help us make that diagnosis. That sounds good.
2: That sounds great. I think that's an interesting point that you make because a lot of, I mean, you're exactly right. I go straight to up to date. I don't know what you do, Tara. And I think one of the first branch points and something that we were taught in medical schools is, is right away, do your volume exam and put people into buckets of hypovolemic, uvolemic, and hypervolemic. And so I think that's really interesting that, you know, might change the way I think about things. Maybe not doing that as my first step, taking back and kind of looking at the objective data.
1: So Max, Let's go through the four causes or the four top etiologies that you think of when the urine osms are high or greater than 200.
0: The first one is pretty obvious. I think we all think about this one's hypovolemia. And this is going to be the the patient who presents with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, poor access to water, or some other kind of history that is consistent. You know, that does mean you have to talk to your patient. You can't, you know, make this entirely based on labs, but it's usually pretty easy to figure out if somebody has a reason to be volume depleted. And to get hyponatremia from volume depletion, you have to be like greater than 20% total body volume depleted. So this is not going to just sneak up on you.
2: Yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't think I realized that.
0: One of the things I'm looking at, if I think this is possibly the case, is vital signs. And these patients are going to be tachycardic. They are going to have soft blood pressures. They might have a lactic acidosis. They might have a prerenal AKI. It's pretty hard to miss, honestly.
2: Max, would, would urine sodium be helpful in situations like these?
0: Yeah, definitely. Urine sodium is what I think of as my correlate for renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And if you've got a urine sodium less than 20, you may hear the nephrology fellows saying that this is a quote, sodium avid state. And what that means is that renin is active, your aldosterone is working, you are reabsorbing the salt from your tubules. And this is going to happen in a volume depleted state. That being said, I'm not always going to write home about the urine sodium. In cases where somebody's been on a diuretic or, you know, they have an AKI or other reason to have impaired kidney function, you may have an elevated, you know, urine sodium in the presence of volume depletion. Um, But generally speaking, it is something that I use to confirm my diagnosis if it is less than 20 and we have the right history.
2: So that's hypovolemic hyponatremia. What about uh, other cases where they don't have that history.
0: I'm going to get a little crazy with you guys on this Uh-oh, one. This is my own go. term, okay? <laughs> this is what I call fake hypovolemia. And this is where the body is sensing a volume deplete state. It's where you know the carotid and aortic arch baroreceptors are not getting distended well. The body thinks that it's in a volume deplete state. But these are really the hypervolemic hyponatremias that you hear about. You know, your heart failure, your cirrhotic patient, where they have volume overload, but they're not able to effectively circulate their blood. This is also where you're going to get the nephrotic syndrome with severe hypoabuminemia, poor oncotic pressure. These patients are usually not subtle, especially if they're well known in the medical system. They've got a history of an echo that shows, you know, reduced ejection fraction or they've got known cirrhosis when they come in. But when a patient comes in that's new to the medical system and they have hyponatremia, these are things that I'm always thinking about. I think both like a thorough lab evaluation as well as physical exam is warranted. So if I'm looking over a patient, I get consult for hyponatremia and I'm talking to them doing my exam, I'm looking, you know, specifically for features of volume overload, obviously looking for JVD, looking for lower extremity edema, abdominal distension, also looking for features of cirrhosis. I think it's important to look for the spider angiomas, to look for you know, other stigmata of liver disease because if you don't look for them, you know, it's just a very helpful clue. And you don't need abdominal imaging that shows features of cirrhosis to find those. When you're checking labs, I think it's reasonable to send a BNP because that's going to come back fairly quickly. And if it's really elevated would be consistent with heart failure. I think it's worthwhile to make sure they have a paddock function panel and an INR. With the heart failure You know, hyponatremia really does trend um, in tandem with the severity of the heart failure. The worse it gets over time, the lower their sodium is going to drop. These are not going to be people who are going to overcorrect rapidly on you. You know, the mainstay of treatment for these patients is just diuresis and decongestion. You know, get them peeing a little bit more. And the classic thinking is kind of shift the Frank Starling curve, and that should help with cardiac output. And, you know, you could see their sodium come up a little bit in the very chronic settings. Though this is just, I think a marker of severity of heart failure. Treating a cirrhotic with severe hyponatremia is probably one of the most challenging patients to treat. It really is a marker of severity. And I think if it, they truly have cirrhosis, really you should be considering palliative care involvement early on and having those difficult conversations. You really are wanting to avoid giving them water and you want to avoid giving them sodium because that's going to lead to worsened fluid overload at the end of the day. So doing a tight fluid restriction, I think is helpful. These tend to be some of the more thirsty patients with hyponatremia. And I just think, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who's kind of towards the end of their life and you, they're thirsty and you're, you know, fluid restricting them, It starts to make them miserable, and so it's just really challenging. The nephrotic syndrome, I mean, this is going to be somebody who has, like, severe hypoalbuminemia, severe fluid overload. Like, they're not just sneaking up on you. They're the Michelin man. You're not going to see this one very often. I do think getting a, you know, if you've gotten an echo and it looks okay and you're convinced this is a fluid overload patient, you really should think about getting a urine protein to quantify that. But that goes for any patient who's volume overloaded and, um, you know, has like a normal echo. I think you should be thinking about liver and kidney, specifically, you know, protein losing kidney nephropathies.
1: Max, can you remind us how high would the protein have to be in the urine to explain that degree of volume overload in hyponatremia? Yeah, good question.
0: You know, I think nephrotic range proteinuria is, you know, classically described as greater than 3 grams in a day. I think in this situation where you're really going to see hyponatremia from it, it's going to be higher than that. And maybe more like on the order of like greater than 10 grams a day. I and mean, you're definitely going to have the other findings, hypoabuminemia, hyperlipidemia, all the other stuff that comes along with it. This is not just like your run of the mill proteinuric patient. This is like somebody who's dumping protein. I think that pretty much covers the quote fake hypovolemia or hypervolemic hyponatremia cases. You know, we talked about different triggers for ADH release, You know, number one being os- serum osmolality that's elevated. And we talked about low effective arterial circulating volume, and those are going to be the hypovolemia and fake hypovolemia. Next is when there's an inappropriate cause for the elevation of ADH, which, surprise, surprise, is named Syndrome of Inappropriate Antidiuretic Hormone. There are many, many causes of SIADH, and we see this in the hospital not infrequently. Probably would say the majority of the cases we see are SIADH. When I think about SIADH, I think about some of the more classic causes, number one being medications. You know, the big medications that I think about is like SSRIs, seizure medications, antipsychotics. Insets can do it. Pain medications can do it. You can basically Google a medication and figure out if it's linked with SIADH. Um, and if you're not sure, I think that's actually a good idea. And you may, you know, find something. Oh, this does you know, regularly cause SIADH. Maybe we should hold it if we can. Other things that can cause SIADH, I like put them in buckets. Number one is just lung stuff. Anything that causes trauma to the lungs like, you know, pneumonia, a pleural effusion or a thoracentesis, a pneumothorax, really anything that causes lung disease can cause a transient release of ADH. Same with brain stuff. That's my next bucket. Brain bleed, uh, subdural, neurosurgical procedure, brain tumor of any variety, all of these things can cause release of ADH. Usually going to be like transient. These are the guys I really think trending the urinosum is important because it can change on you. These kind of transient things that are happening, Urinosum may be super super high, but then when they that insult has kind of gone away a couple of days later, they're apt to kind of open up on you. And by that I mean they make a dilute urine. The ADH is no longer you know being released. And so they can overcorrect. So just make sure you're, you know, checking this urinosum serially over time, and then you'll be ahead of the game. And maybe you can start giving them some glasses of water before they overcorrect on you. Other classic causes of SIDH is just nausea, vomiting, pain retching can do it, any stress to the body, uh, any trauma in general, or surgery in general. You put the body through stress, it's possible that through the stress response, ADH is going to get released. And then you can also see small cell lung cancers causing a paraneoplastic syndrome of inappropriate ADH.
1: Okay, so S I D H falls under the kind of branch point where ADH is on, so our urinosomes are high, but the ADH is inappropriately turned on. What other disease process do we think about if we're going down this branch point?
0: Yeah. So I mean, technically a form of SIADH is going to be the uh, endocrine disorders that can cause hyponatremia. For a while I had a hard time remembering exactly which ones these are. So I kind of put them in my own little bucket aside from SIADH. They are adrenal insufficiency and hypothyroidism. Both of them are low, which I think makes it a little bit easier if you think of they're both deficiencies of a hormone. You know, the adrenal insufficiency is not as straightforward as they're, you know, having a mineral corticoid deficiency. And I think it's actually a little bit controversial, but any part along the HPA axis being messed up can lead to hyponatremia is essentially the takeaway for that one. And you've got to give them glucocorticoid therapy back. I think checking an 8AM cortisol on any patient that it looks consistent with a diagnosis of SIADH is a reasonable place to start. And if you have concern for adrenal insufficiency, it may be worthwhile to just go ahead and, and jump to the ACTH stem test. Hypothyroidism, again, something I think I've seen like one time, where you have somebody who's coming in with severe clinical syndrome of hypothyroidism with like bradycardia and mixed edema coma and kind of even then I think the one time I saw it, the patient had like a very mild hyponatremia but it is a cause and I think checking a TSH is easy enough to do. Might as well tack a free T4 level on there at least that's what I do. So if I see the stigmata of SIADH I regularly will tack on that 8am cortisol and a TSH.
1: Love it. So not to heavily rely on labs because, you know, physical exams are very important and a good history is very important. But if we're thinking about these inappropriate SIDH syndromes, good to start with TSH, maybe think about an AM cortisol, and then doing a really good dive into the medications that patients might be taking.
0: Definitely. Cool. And then when you're talking about treatment of SIADH, you know this is the one where nephrologists will often say, you know, they'll try to trick you on rounds and ask, "Is this a problem of salt or is this a problem of water?" And the answer is that this is a problem of water and water retention. So, if for anyone listening out there, you're welcome, I've mean, just <laughs> saved your butt for a pin. I should question. have listened to this two years ago. It's a water problem. So um, the the treatment really. For SIADH, I think is free water restriction. Just restrict how much water they're putting in their body because they're going to try their, their hardest to hold on to any water that they can. And that includes even limiting the amount of isotonic IV fluids that you're giving them. You know, if their urine osm is significantly elevated and I think a cutoff may be like greater than 500, these people are likely to hold on to the water that you give them. So if you bolus them with a liter of isotonic fluids, their sodium may actually get worse because they'll pee out the salt, but they'll hold on to the water. So that kind of points to the next part of treatment, which is trying to increase the amount of water that you get them to pee out. And you can do that by giving them solute. One of the solutes that we use is sodium chloride, salt tabs. You know, you're not getting a whole lot of bang for your buck with salt tabs. So if you're going to give them, I think you should give them in fairly high doses. One gram of salt tabs is, I think, somewhere around, it's like 17 milli equivalents of sodium. So it, it really isn't that much. In nephrology here at Vanderbilt, we use urea as our form of solute and SIADH because it's just a lot more potent. What you're doing is, giving them solute that they're eventually going to have to pee out. When they pee that solute out, it drags some water with it. You want to give them as much solute as they can. Sometimes the urea, you know, patients don't like the way it tastes, and so that may be a problem and a reason to use the salt tabs. But in general, if somebody's got like a legit hyponatremia and you think it's SIADH, fluid restriction in urea is a good place to start. That's the general treatment of SIADH, and honestly, it works really well. If you're going to dose urea, 15 grams twice a day is generally a good place to start, and you can increase it to 30 grams twice a day.
1: Yeah, urea does not sound like it would taste good to me. When we're talking about free water restricting these patients, I know sometimes it just feels cruel how much we free water restrict them. What's your free water restriction, or is it just nothing? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. No, as much as I'd like to say I'm the guy that goes around saying you can have nothing to drink, I, I think it's inhumane. And thirst is a survival mechanism. It's not easy to ignore thirst. Less than a liter a day is very challenging unless you have a really motivated patient who's not that thirsty. So typically don't really recommend going less than one liter. For a classic SIDH patient, I think one liter still probably going to drink a little bit more than that. That's about as good as you're going to get. Alright, so to summarize, if we're going down the branch on the diagnosis of hyponatremia where we have elevated urine osm, there really are four causes. And it is that simple. Number one, hypovolemia. Number two, fake hypovolemia, aka hypervolemia. Number three, SIADH. And, you know, put those in buckets of meds brain stuff, lung stuff, general trauma, and small cell lung cancer. And then number four, endocrine insufficiencies, adrenal and thyroid. And I think we can move over and start talking about some of the causes where we have low urine osmolality, which would be an appropriately dilute urine in the face of hyponatremia.
1: You make it sound so easy, Max.
0: It is easy. Yeah. So low urine osmolality, you know, meaning that ADH is not a big player of the cause for the hyponatremia. I tend to think of these as the more boring causes of hyponatremia. I think of the body as a tank. There is water and solute going into the tank and there's water and solute coming out of the tank. These causes are when there's an imbalance of one or more of those four things. You know. In general, a patient who has a normal dietary solute intake and is drinking a lot of water, it takes a lot of water for them to start driving down their sodium, somewhere between 12 and 15 liters before you start to see their sodium fall. This is classically what I'd think of as like, you know, your, quote, psychogenic polydipsia patient who you're having a hard time keeping out of the toilet when you take away their access to water. They're very thirsty, Thirst is a survival mechanism, and if these patients truly are thirsty, they're going to do anything they can to drink, and it's really hard to combat this kind of cause of hyponatremia. Once you start to see somebody has impaired dilutional capacity of their kidney, like somebody who has CKD or is on diuretics, classically thiazides, but also loop diuretics, or somebody who has sickle cell disease. The amount of water that it takes to start to drive their sodium down decreases. And that's because they are urinating out more solute with that same amount of volume that they're taking in. And, you know, for them, if they're only able to dilute their urine to about 200 milliosms per liter, you know, it may only take about five liters of water intake before they start to drive their sodiums down. Also in this bucket is where I think about my beer potomania patients. And that's because they classically somebody who's on a bender drinking a bunch of beer is not taking in a whole lot of solute, but they sure are pounding down some beers, which are about 97% water. And if you think about it, throughout the course of a day, if somebody drinks an entire case of beer and they're not taking any solute, you know, their sodiums can be driven down pretty low, especially if they're doing this for multiple days in a row. These patients are particularly important because they are at increased risk of central pontine myelinolysis and I really think that these are the patients where you should be thinking about something called a desmopressant clamp. I don't know if you know you guys have heard of that much or if, or if you've used it yourself. I was
2: just going to say, I think I've only heard that in, in the setting of an ICU where mm-hmm. you can like administer it and then uh, get enough blood draws where you can really control their physiology.
0: Yeah, I mean, essentially for these people, you make it easy. This person, when they get admitted to the ICU and their stimulus for the cause of their hyponatremia has been removed, the beer intake, their body's going to start doing what it's supposed to, which is to start a free water diuresis. And they are going to start just peeing out, uh, dilute urine, and their sodiums are going to start to climb up. And they can do so very fast and can be dangerous well, if you give them ADH and you take away their ability to have a free water diuresis, then you have the opportunity to control how much solute you, you put into the tank. Oftentimes you can do that with a hypertonic saline infusion. You can do some math and figure out exactly what the rate's going to be, basically set it and forget it, maybe with a few adjustments made overnight by the night team. And when you get back in the morning, you're going to be sitting pretty. Speaking of central pontine myelinolysis, your alcoholics and elderly patients are the ones you need to be especially cautious about. The desmopressin clamp, by the way, only works when the urine osm is low. If they already have a high urine osm, you're really not doing much. Generally, this is the bucket where I think about something like a desmopressin clamp. Uh, Also, over here in the low urine osmolality group is going to be your tea and toast diet patients. I used to think that was just something that was in the textbooks until I actually had a woman come in with hyponatremia and tell me she's on a tea and toast diet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That makes it it's easier It's like she for read you. the textbooks. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So apparently that's a thing. And um, what you need to be really careful about over here is these patients are oftentimes the ones who are on thiazide diuretics too. In residency, when I was starting somebody on thiazide diuretics, I routinely checked a BMP within a few weeks of starting it just to check and see because you can start to see a pretty severe hyponatremia develop pretty quickly um, when starting even a low-dose thiazide, especially in these elderly patients who may not have a very high solute intake. So just something to be mindful of. That's pretty much it. You can extrapolate the solute and water input and the solute and water output. And, um, you can look and see what their urine osm is and kind of just play around with it. But if you understand the physiologic principles and think of the body like a tank, you know, it's pretty easy to think about how to treat these patients too.
1: This was so helpful in going through how you think about approaching hyponatremia. It sounds like we always want to confirm with a serum osm that it is hypotonic hyponatremia. And then from there, checking a urine osm will kind of set us down one of the two pathways we discussed. And again, to just look at the patient in front of us and then put them into buckets from there, depending on what their presenting complaint is, etc. I know this is probably a whole other talk in and of itself, but if you were to give us a couple... Back pocket tips on treating hyponatremia. What kind of things do you start with?
0: Absolutely. I think one thing that's, you know, important is what do I do in the situation where a hyponatremic patient starts having a seizure? And that's something we're all terrified about. Um, you know, you have to have something ready to go. In that situation, you don't have time to, to look it up to date. I would say that you could give that patient a 100 milliliter bolus of hypertonic saline, and that should raise their serum sodium by about two to three equivalents. And if that doesn't work, you could consider redosing that 100 milliliter bolus. If at that point you have not, you know. To have the patient come out of the seizure, you really need to think about other causes. And you should consider brain imaging and anti-epileptics and talking with neurology, obviously. But in a pinch, 100-milliliter bolus of 3% hypertonic saline um, can sometimes bring a patient out of a seizure. Another thing that you need to focus on is ways to prevent worsening of hyponatremia. Oftentimes I recommend first when we're figuring out the cause, putting the patient on a fluid restriction. If the patient has real severe hyponatremia, you can do a 500cc PO fluid restriction or you can make them NPO until you figure out what's going on, moving in the right direction. You can always liberate their fluid restriction later. Most cases, fluid restriction is part of the management, especially in SIADH and the hypervolemic states.
2: This comes up a lot on the floor when we get patients that are admitted to us. Do you follow the 24-hour limit in terms of how quickly you want to correct someone? And then does the acuity of their hyponatremia matter in that?
0: Definitely. Um, You know, acute versus chronic, where do we draw the line? That's 48 hours. Oftentimes when patients present, we don't have labs from the last 48 hours. So you have to assume it's a chronic process. The reason this matters is because, you know, in an acute drop in sodium, say it's happened while it's in the hospital, you can just correct that person's sodium pretty quickly back to what it was. In a chronic situation is where you start getting really worried about, um, cerebral edema or, uh, overcorrecting causing, uh, central pontine myelinolysis. At the general recommendation is in twenty four hour period you should be raising someone's sodium by about six. I think you can get away with eight the old guidelines used to say ten but you certainly don't want to correct by more than you know eight in the hospital in a twenty four hour period One thing that's kind of scary about c CPM is that it doesn't present until a couple days later and so you don't really want to find out. A few days later, that you made that mistake, and so being really conservative, especially out of the gates, especially in the elderly and alcoholic patients, that for them you may want to target more like four in a 24-hour period. Now, it's a different story for somebody who comes in with severe symptomatic, you know, hyponatremia. In that case you may want to target six in the first six hours and then keep them at that level and still not increase by more than six in the first 24.
2: Max, thank you so much for taking us through a very difficult, but yet common problem.
0: Whatever diagnostic approach that you use, I just recommend that you try to use the same one as you move through your training and you start to hone in and figure out whatever approach works best for you. This is what works best for me. It doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. And don't be afraid to call us. We like this stuff. I think, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is giving a a bolus of normal sailing just to see what happens. If you're in a situation where that's what you're thinking about doing, just reach out and ask us for help.
1: Max, this was awesome. I think it's so helpful to hear how you think through these things and how a nephrologist approaches uh, electrolyte abnormalities. I'm gonna refer back to this all the time. I don't know about you, yeah, Jared.
2: I'm definitely gonna listen to this episode for sure. Mainly because I like hearing myself talk, but it, correct, correct. Also, um, I like learning about sodium because yes. maybe this will prevent me from serially rechecking up to date for that algorithm. So, thank you, Max. This has been this has been awesome.
0: Thanks for having me. Hope it was helpful.